Hey, good morning, church. How are you out there? Hey, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. We're so glad you decided to be with us here this morning as we uh, venture into this counter-cultural convictions series. Yeah, gender. Yeah. Wait, is this me? <laughs> yeah, I, I had a bunch of people when I told them this is what I was addressing, they just, their eyes just got big and were like, oh, okay, great. Uh, yeah, I feel it. I feel it. You know that this is complicated. You know this is difficult, right? The idea that this is going to be a challenging talk is probably not surprising to you. And it's challenging for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of the reasons that it's challenging is because this is a vast conversation. And we've got 35 minutes. Uh, so the idea that I'm going to be able to uh, really wrap all of it up and have everything to say in 35 minutes is probably a little crazy. But uh, one of my favorite things I get to do here uh, at church is I teach LaunchPoint, which is a four-week class that helps people get connected to the church. And in the very first week of LaunchPoint, I tell them partway through, hey, I'm going to tell you the whole story of the Bible in 30 minutes. And people laugh because that seems impossible. And it really is unless you take an approach that says, I'm going to skip like a stone on the top of the water just trying to touch the high points of this conversation. And that's really what I'm going to try to do today. I want to give you a little bit of the lay of the land of what we're going to try to accomplish. Uh, here's kind of the list of things I want to address. The first is we're going to look at kind of a high-level overview of what the current cultural conversation around gender entails. I want to look at what the Bible has to say about that topic. I want to realistically address the tension that exists in that conversation. I want to look at what the call for the church is. And then I want to leave us with some hope as we move forward in this conversation. Like any conversation you're walking into that could be contentious or argumentative, uh, even though I'm the only one with the mic, we do have some ground rules and I've just signed you up for them. So you probably should know here's what they are that you agreed to. Uh, the first one is I need grace. Uh, Sean Warren, who's one of our pastoral staff, one of my closest friends, he asked me this morning before I came up for the first service, how many hours would you estimate you've spent thinking about this topic in preparation? And I told him hundreds. I don't know if that's true, but it sure feels that way. I've spent countless hours reading, listening, thinking, talking, praying about this topic because I really have a deep desire to be helpful and faithful. But I also know my own limitations. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a professor, I'm a pastor. So as I attempt to lead us through this conversation, I would just say be gentle with me as I try to do this. The second thing we have to agree upon is that we're going to do our best to avoid oversimplification. This is a complicated situation and it deals with real people dealing with the most fundamental issues of their being and therefore we will avoid taking the easy way out and just making it oversimplified so that we can put things in categories and be done with it. We're going to do our best not to do that. Thirdly, we are going to pursue truth. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, we are Christians. If you're in this room and you follow Jesus, then the scriptures are our authority. They are the baseline in which we derive our mission and drive for engaging in the world. If you're here with us this morning and you say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, well, then you need to know that about us. Uh, those of us who follow Jesus, that's part of the ground rules. We're going to pursue that truth. Even if it conflicts with the way we feel personally, we're going to deal with that tension. The fourth thing is we're going to focus on us. It's really easy to focus on them, whoever you decide to put in that category. But the responsibility we have this morning is to focus on us, our response, our heart, the way we are shaped in this conversation. And lastly, 
uh, early on, I was talking to some of my team and I said, you know what's really important to me is that we just don't take any cheap shots in this conversation. It, it's really easy to uh, make jokes and be dismissive on topics that we're uncomfortable with. I'm not gonna do that today, but more than that, I'm gonna ask you to not do that when you leave. So when you go home today and you have a conversation about this over dinner or you're talking with your family, I want you to keep this in mind. We are not going to take cheap shots at real people struggling with real things because that's not the Jesus way of responding. Deal? Those are the ground rules. And now we're going to pray. So let's pray for wisdom today. God, we thank you so much for your good gift of your word that helps give us direction and lights the path between, before our feet. God, I just pray that you'd be with me this morning. My desire is to be helpful and to be clear and to point people to the hope found in Jesus. Just help me do that. God, I pray for open hearts. I pray for understanding. God, I pray for salvation. We find it in Jesus alone. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let's start with the current temperature. I'm going to try to do my best to give you uh, what I understand to be the current cultural uh, temperature on this topic of gender. We're going to try to look at uh, this idea. This is historically the idea that sex, meaning my physical sexual characteristics, are equal to my gender has just been a normative expectation. So when you fill out a form at the census and it says sex or gender, there historically has really not been confusion about what they're asking me. I know how to answer the question. What has developed over the last number of years in our culture is simply put this. Sex, meaning my external, external, external physical sexual characteristics, do not necessarily reflect gender identity, meaning how I feel and want to express myself internally. That is the big shift in this conversation in our culture over the last decade or so. It's really a conversation of the biological versus the psychological, meaning what I have as a body versus what I feel internally, what my emotional state is, what my mental state is, and how I desire to express that. Those two things are not necessarily in our societal thinking right now coupled together. In fact, sometimes they can be at odds with each other altogether. Really, it's getting at this idea, uh, historically, we've had to just deal with this reality in the world that part of me is fixed, the hardware that I've been given at birth is fixed, and my internal life is actually variable. Depending on the day, depending on the moment, depending on the hour, how I'm feeling can shift and change. And because my external reality was a fixed reality, there was really nothing I could do about it. You were forced as a person, even if you were dealing with some internal struggle, to just deal with the reality that my external life is a fixed reality. Medical uh, science has moved us beyond that restriction. We can now change what has historically been fixed, meaning you can undergo hormone therapies and you can undergo uh, transformational surgeries that can change the fixed biological portion of my being to better match what I internalize as my internal oftentimes variable being. Does that make sense? Okay. There's a move beyond that even uh, that has really taken root in the last few years 
Uh, historically, gender has been seen as a very clear binary choice. It's a switch that's set to either male or female. In the last number of years, there's been a move to say that even that is restrictive. So historically, even in the conversation about transgender people, what has, what has typically f- uh, backed up that conversation is that my external switch is set to a different setting than my internal one, and I need to bring harmony between those by switching the external switch. That's now being viewed as an outdated idea. Now you go, wait, I'm just barely getting up to speed on that one. There's another one? Yeah, the, the next one is saying that idea that there's some sort of gender switch that's binary is actually kind of outdated and a little bit restrictive. What we need to think about is that gender is a continuum, meaning it's a, a large scale from the most masculine to the most feminine, and we shouldn't really put people on either end of the scale. You get to tell me where on the scale are you? Are you macho man who likes monster trucks and assault weapons? Uh, are you lady who likes frilly dresses and tea and crumpet. I don't, you can tell I'm a little out of my element once I get over here. Or, or where are you? Are you like 30% masculine, 70%? Are you 30% feminine, right? Tell me where you are. Now, the problem with that, A, it solves a problem. I don't have to fit into any neat category. It also solves a problem in society that says, well, but here's the issue, like, the way I feel kind of changes day to day. Today I feel really strong and masculine, so I can slide myself on the scale over here. Tomorrow I feel a little more vulnerable, a little more feminine, so I can slide myself on the scale over here. Don't put me in a box, bro. Gender is a continuum. And we're not done with this evolution in our society on the conversation of gender. Uh, there's, a, there's a woman that I'm going to quote here, Judith Lorber. She is a, uh, for, in the forefront of this conversation on gender studies in our culture. She is a uh, professor emeritus of sociology and women's studies at the City University of New York. This is what she says. Uh, I long for the day when gender distinctives have effectively disappeared. When we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when that information is, is irrelevant as the color of the child's eyes. Because only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will no longer be need for gender at all. So we went from gender is clear and fixed, to gender is optional in a binary sense, to gender has now exists on a continuum, to you know what, it's probably an outdated idea altogether and we should just get rid of it. That's where we're heading as a society, towards this idea. Now, I want to be, be generous to Miss um, Lorber. She, her goal, which is equality between the genders, seems like a good goal to be aiming for. Like, I, I could see that, why you would see... You know what, in our society, oftentimes men and women are not treated equally, and, and oftentimes gender is used as a category to subjugate people, and we've done that historically, and I still see places in our society where that's happening. I know the answer to the problem. Just get rid of the idea of gender altogether. I would say the desire for equality is good. The means at which to achieve it is madness. This will not lead us to the equality that we're hoping for, and we're going to talk about what does that look like. So one of the things that's really interesting in this conversation, and I think it's helpful for us to get our head around, is like, 
what are the actual numbers of people we're talking about? A lot of times when a cultural conversation bubbles to the surface, it feels like, well, this must be impacting everyone all the time, everywhere, because it seems to be a dominant conversation. I had a conversation with someone in our church who said, you know, I just signed up for this new streaming service, and I was too cheap to pay for the no commercial version, so I got the commercial version. It was Hulu. And, uh, and so they said, you know, for the first time in years, I'm watching commercials, and I'm shocked by how many commercials uh, have transgendered people prominently featured in the commercial, uh, which really leads to this assumption like this must be a very dominant thing right now. Well, it's probably helpful for us to understand what are the actual numbers. I uh, did some research on your behalf. Uh, Pew did a study in the summer of 2021, and one of the questions that they asked of a large group of Americans was, do you identify as transgendered? It was in a category of a whole bunch of other stuff. 0.6% of respondents in that survey said that they identify as transgender. Now, I, I want to admit that this is a little bit murky because they did not define what transgendered meant, what put you in that category. It was self-defined. You, you said, I am or not transgendered, 0.6%. And you go, well, that seems like a very small percentage. And it is, but we are a big country. That's 2 million people in the United States who responded to this if that number holds, uh, that would put themselves in a category of being transgendered. Now, there's another category of person that fits into the same conversation. In the year 2000, there was a large study done of births across the Western world, and what they found is that children were born with ambiguous sex characteristics, meaning the genitals that they were born with out of the womb were undetermined, in one in 2,000 births. That's another 2 million people in the United States that are born with either a lack of genitalia, indiscriminate, or in, uh, you know what I'm trying to say, we can't tell, <laughs> or, uh, or both genders. And typically what happens in that case is that they bring in a gender specialist that works for the hospital that takes a look, makes a determination, and at least historically, many times without the input of the parent, said, that's a boy, that's a girl, and they roll with it. That's two million people in the United States who deal with a genetic abnormality that they were born with that puts them into an ambiguous category. Four million people we just summarized. Now, here's, here's where I think this really impacts our cultural conversation in a large way. That's a significant amount of people. We cannot discount. That is a real and large number of people in our society. But this one, I think, impacts the cultural conversation even more. On that same survey that said 0.6% of people identify as being transgendered, 31% of adults answered positively, I personally know someone who has told me that they're transgendered. So a third of people in America said, I personally know somebody who fits into this category, and they know me and trust me enough that they told me about it. I think the thing that's the most interesting is if you look at the generational gap, I, picked, I cherry-picked kind of the two categories that uh, I think highlighted to me. 50 to 64-year-olds, 24%, about a quarter of them said this was true, but 18 to 29-year-olds said 50% of them said, I know someone who fits in this category. It makes sense why this is a cultural conversation. If there is a large number of people who are telling someone they know, love, and trust that this is my experience in life, then it introduces real tension into our culture to say, what do we do now? People I know, people I love, people that trust me, 
are experiencing this situation, how do we deal with it? The answer the culture has given is throw away gender as a concept. It's outdated. The question you might be asking, particularly if you're in that maybe 50 to 65-year-old category, is like, how in the world did we end up in this place? Because i, I got to be honest, I've, I feel like I'm pretty cool and hip and with it. You know that's not true because I just said I'm cool and hip and with it. But I feel the same thing. I'm like, wait a second, this conversation feels like it went from like a very fringe conversation to a mainline conversation in about three to five years. And you're not wrong, that's actually what has happened. This has become a dominant part of our cultural conversation virtually overnight. And you might say, like, how in the world did that happen? Well, I'm going to make an argument to you. I've, I told you I've done a lot of reading and a lot of research. I actually think that this conversation around gender is an absolutely normative outcome that should be expected based on our philosophical tendencies in the West. And I'm going to give you more about that. I'm not going to make you guess what that means. Welcome to the West. What do I mean by the West? I mean, if you grew up, if you're born and grew up in Canada, the United States, or Western Europe, you are lumped into a cultural category known as the West. And in the West, what you find as a dominant way of approaching the world is rational, materialist, psychological, self-determinist. That makes sense, right? Don't worry, I'll walk you through it. This is the default mode of most people born in the West. And I'll walk you through what that looks like. The first is we are rationalists. What does that mean? That means that we are currently and increasing every day moving towards a reality in which my reason, I highlight the word my reason, is the chief source and test of knowledge. Meaning, I will not accept that something is true unless I personally have wrestled with it and deem it to be so. You see an increase in this all over the place. And if you want an example, let's just look at the discussion around masks and vaccines in our culture. We are divided along those, cult those lines, and the dominant way we've argued about those two things is this. My reason says no. My reason says yes. This is the way we are as a culture. And it is increased to say, now everyone has to make a decision for themselves. The idea historically that you could be an expert on every topic in society would be ludicrous, except now it's expected. You need to be an expert and have an opinion that is hard-lined on every topic that the culture gives you. You want to talk about race, you want to talk about inequality, you want to talk about gender, you want to talk about vaccines, you want to talk about masks, you want to talk about hospitalization. You have to know it all and you have to be very sure of yourself. And you're responsible because after all, your reason is the one to do it. You, if you want to thank someone, the philosopher Rene Descartes is the one that kind of put this forward as a predominant idea that has been born into our culture, okay? Next up, materialists. What does this look like? It means that all facts are reducible to physical realities. This means in our culture, we have said there is nothing mysterious, everything can be mastered. Now, in many cases, this is really good. Historically, we would have said, you have an illness, something like COVID-19. We would have said, well, I guess the gods are angry with you. And materialism has led us to say, no, actually, we understand how viruses work and how people are infected and how we can enact it, virus control and all of those things. There are good things that come out of materialism. The problem is when we take it to its end, what we find is we begin to explain away mysterious things like love 
as being simply chemical reactions that happen in the brain that were developed thousands of years ago for self-preservation purposes because if we had an in-group that were committed to each other, we could survive against our neighbors. Love no longer is mysterious and beautiful. It's physical and easily explained. This is the world that we live in. Psychological. I would guess most of us would feel almost like it would be impossible to honestly say this was not a true statement. Mental and emotional states are profoundly important to my experience as a human. This is not a new idea. The, the Apostle Paul, I think, expresses this idea when he says, I'm really struggling because what I want to do inside, I can't do outside. And what I don't want to do, I end up finding myself to do. What he's describing is his psychological self is out of line with his physical activity. This is a normative way to think about our world in the West. And it's becoming increasingly important as defining who you are and what your experience should be in the world. Lastly, and I think this one is probably the most important because I think it underpins all of the rest. We are self-determinists. What do I mean by that? I mean that we own a fundamental right to freedom and we are free to choose anything that does not harm others. This, this is just like basic understanding of what it means to be an American. I'll take it out of the West and say, America, I have freedom, and as long as I'm not harming anybody, live and let live. This, this, is, uh, this is the foundation of the American Revolution. How in the world should England, who's way over there, tell us what to do? We have a fundamental right to freedom, and as long as we're not harming anyone, we should be able to choose it. This is foundational to our understanding about how to operate in our world. Now, if you put those things together, what we create is a solution that can solve almost any problem that we have. In the West, we are doers, we are solvers, we are fixers, and how? This. If there is a conflict between my psychological self, the part that's the inside of me, and my material self, the physical external part of me, then I can reason my way to a solution, and no one has any right to stop me. And you go, okay, I can see how that works with this gender conversation, but I, I want to submit to you, this works in almost everything we do in our society. If you work in a job that is not fulfilling for you, meaning the physical thing you do outside of you does not fulfill the inner part of you, you can reason your way to a solution, a new career, and no one should have any right to tell you you shouldn't do it. I want a new car, I want a new house, I want a new spouse. I want to pursue this love interest. I want to get this college degree. I want to have another kid. I don't want to have another kid. You can run every bit of those conversations through this rubric, and you're going to understand how people come to that conclusion, including people in the church many times, including me many times. We can talk about another hot-button topic uh, in culture, abortion. How are people wrestling with abortion? They're wrestling with it through this lens. Let's go back to the last self-determination. What's the last key question? I am free to choose anything that does not harm others. What is the conversation about abortion really getting at? Is this a person or not a person? Pro-life people say that's a person. You're harming someone else. You shouldn't be free to do it. Pro-choice people say that's not a person yet. I should be free to do it. No one was harmed. When you apply this to the gender conversation, you go, oh, this makes total sense how we ended up in this place. 
We have advanced medically and scientifically enough that the fixed part of me can be changed. I can go get hormones tomorrow that will begin the process. I can schedule a surgery tomorrow that will begin the process. And as long as no one is being harmed, who has the right to stop me? This is a natural outflow of our society. So what does the Bible have to say about these issues? Now, I'm, I'm going to be, I got to be honest with you. The culture has a lot more uh, material on this topic than the Bible does. But the Bible, what it gives us is very clear. And I'm going to walk us through that because I think it'll give us a place to jump off and how we address it as the church. Let's start at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. At the pinnacle of the creation story is the creation of humanity. And what Genesis chapter 1 says is that as God finishes his creation, he says, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this was an absolutely revolutionary idea in the ancient Near East, primarily because the idea that the image of God existed in any person that was material and human was ludicrous. Maybe one person, it was usually the king, the emperor, whoever the guy in charge was, maybe he could make this claim, but the rest of us, the rest of us pukes out there, no way. And the Hebrew Bible does something absolutely radical. It says every single one of us is imbued with the image of God. But it goes beyond that. And this was even more subversive. It's not just men that have this ability, also women. You have to keep in mind, in their society, this would have been revolutionary. Wait, you're saying men and women are equally made in God's image? I don't even know how to process that. It was a radical idea. And this is what it teaches us. The image of God is more fully displayed through the diversity of his gendered creation. Meaning, men and women are equally created in the image of God, but they have each been given unique pieces of that image in order to more fully reflect him to the creation in their gendered uniqueness. Meaning the gift that we have been given is our gender. It's part of the gift. So whether you are a feminine woman or a feminine man or a manly man or a manly woman, that is not necessarily the issue to put you in a category. It's to say that the gifts that you've been given as an individual, a gendered person, is a gift to be used to reflect God's image to his world. And we should not view it as an anchor. We should not view it as a hindrance. We should view it as a gift. And you say, okay, great, you got the first chapter of the Bible. You got anything else there, Skippy? Sure. How about Jesus? Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is in a classic Jesus situation where the Pharisees are trying to catch him in a trap. The, the, the cultural context that he's addressing is marriage. The Pharisees are kind of the cultural conservatives. They believe in a restrictive view of marriage that it's not easy to get out of a marriage. The Sadducees, who are kind of the cultural liberals of the society, say, no, as long as you go through the right process, you can get rid of a marriage in any case. And so the Pharisees come baiting Jesus because they know no matter which one of the two options he gives them, someone's going to be mad at him, which is the goal. So they say, some Pharisees come to test him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read he replied that in the beginning, the creator 
made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus here affirms the creation story we just talked about, that gendered creation was intentional and good, and that the course of God's people, remember he's talking to Israel, he's talking to God's people, is a physical reality. So you say, well, maybe Jesus was just talking about an internal psychological reality. No, because in the next verse he talks about procreation. He says, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. He says they fit together like puzzle pieces and become one person and then they have babies. This is a physical reality. Gender, as it's described by Jesus, is clearly describing a physical reality to live within. And then you say, okay, that's great, but I'm just using what you gave me. What about the people you mentioned earlier? You just told me four million people don't fit into that category. What are we supposed to do with it? Well, guess what? Jesus has got you covered. Because in the same chapter, in the same conversation, Jesus says, you can't get a divorce unless adultery happens. Otherwise, you're wedded to your spouse for life. And the disciples offline go, geez, that's a heavy load. Wouldn't it be just better never to get married then? If I'm stuck forever? And Jesus says, this. Which feels out of left. I was talking to my wife and she goes, I feel like I've never heard that before. It's like, that's because we focus on the first part. Here's what Jesus says. There are eunuchs who were born that way. What is a eunuch? Well, if you don't live in an ancient Near Eastern society, a eunuch is someone who is born with an intersexed condition. Someone who is born with indeterminate sexual characteristics. Some were born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, either forcibly or because they've chosen to undergo that procedure. Usually this was males who were castrated, usually for a religious purpose. Many times it was the king who had a harem of women. He needed someone to watch over, but he wanted to make sure he wasn't getting any ideas. So we'll take care of that. But then he says there's a third category of person who chooses to live like a eunuch, meaning I choose not to pursue sex and marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that introduces a real tension to us. And here's what the tension is. Creational intent isn't always experienced in our world. In the same conversation, Jesus says God created people, man and female, to be married and to have children. And then he also says in the same conversation, some people are born outside of that reality. And so that creates a real tension for us. And it's in that tension that we have to say, what do we do as the church? What's the call? What is the response of the church in a world that makes claims like this? The first one is the church needs to aim to live within the confines of the good created order. This is an issue of authority. We live in a society in which authority is a bad word. This asks the question, who has the power to decide? Who has the power to make claims over the most personal parts of you? It, asks, it challenges the claim that you might make as a part of this church when you say all of life is all for Jesus. You mean even the parts you keep covered up? Even the parts that are only reflected at the deepest part of your being? Yes, we submit to that. One of my favorite theologians, Al Walters, I had the privilege of when Al was very old, he came in and taught Brian and I actually in seminary. We lo- love Al. 
I had him autograph this book he wrote called Creation Regained, which is one of my favorite books. This is what he says. Humanism considers law to be a contradiction of freedom. The Bible considers law to be the condition of freedom. What does that mean? It means that the world around us, our modern world, says that any law and any authority that is outside of myself and contradicts my deepest desire is a contradiction of your freedom to be the person you desire to be. And therefore, should be removed, or at best, you should only submit to it if you agree to it. And then he posits the alternative counter-cultural conviction that the church holds, that the Bible states that law is a condition of freedom. What do we mean by law? We mean the created order. We mean the structure that God has given the world is not something to hold you back. Instead, when you operate within it, you find freedom because you are no longer forced to make sense or make logic of something that you were never designed to make logic or sense of. It was a gift that you were given to operate within. And when you can accept this is how God made me and I can live within it, you find freedom to not have to make those kinds of choices. After all, if the first idea was true, that if we can get rid of even natural laws like gender, that we will find true freedom, then... Those people I talked about at the beginning, Gen Z, the youngest generation in our society who's the most open on this topic, who knows the most people who experience this either personally or have friends that experience transgender issues, gender dysphoria, therefore those people must be the most free people we have. They must be living it up. They must have it all figured out. Here's what the stats tell us. Gen Z is the most mentally unhealthy generation in the history of America. Only 45% of Gen Z claim that their mental health is good. They are the most depressed generation in history. 37% of them have had thoughts of self-harm in the last two weeks. The law that the world is trying to throw off of itself is leading to more consternation, more anxiety, more difficulty, more stress. There was a quote that I read that said, Gen Z yearns for stability in a chaotic world. I love that quote. I yearn for stability in a chaotic world. I'm guessing you do too. The issue is that right now we are being presented yet another option in the smorgasbord of freedom that will eventually lead us to the promised land, and it's a lie. It's not the first lie, it's not even that creative of a lie. But it's a lie nonetheless. Freedom is not found here. Freedom is found when we submit ourselves to what God has made us to be. We have to acknowledge that as the church, we are a part of a new thing in Jesus. A new thing. I'm talking about Gen Z, which means I'm old because only old people talk about generations younger than them. I'm a Gen Xer. The boomers used to talk about me. Uh, that means I grew up in the 80s. 1984 was a big year, especially if you're into uh, robots fighting, which I was. Still kind of am, if I'm being honest. 1984, two shows came on the scene that absolutely changed my six-year-old life. The first one was the Transformers, which you might be familiar with. These were uh, vehicles that could transform into robots and fight. Really cool. The other one you might not be as familiar with, but uh, you Gen Xers out there, you know, when I say Voltron, what's up? 
Voltron came out the exact, I don't know what was going on in 1984, but the Japanese animators got real excited about robots fighting. Uh, and Voltron told the story of five space heroes who all were given this amazing power uh, to be lion-shaped robots that could fight bad guys. And uh, I'm not going to claim that Voltron was some, like, deep, you know, literature. <laughs> Here was every episode of Voltron. Individual lion fighters started fighting on their own, and they got, started to get beat up by the bad guys, and so then they had to do what Voltron does. They combined together into one super robot, Voltron, which had a really awesome sword and a bitey lion hand for a fist, uh, and then they would absolutely destroy the enemy. Every episode was the same episode, and it was equally awesome every single time. And here's what I'm here to tell you. The church is Voltron. Okay, that's maybe a step too far. But I think it gets us to the idea of what we're trying to say. Here is what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Galatia when he writes them a letter to deal with divisions that they're experiencing within the church. Here's what he says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ there is neither Jew, nor Gentile, nor slave, nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ. Now we have to be careful. He is not saying that these are not real distinctions. They did not become imaginary because you came, became a Christian. Instead, when you submit yourself to Christ and you are included in him, in his body, in his family, these things that were once dividing lines, identifiers, the things that would re, uh, disunite you from your human, your human brothers are now gifts to be used for the blessing of your neighbor and the world. Your Jewness and your Gentileness does not cease to be a reality. Instead, it is not the identifier that says this is who you are. Instead, it becomes a gift that I can use for the purpose of the gospel to reach my neighbor and reach the world. And the same is true of your maleness and your femaleness. In Christ, you are given the true freedom to shed the burden of using these distinctives as the things that mark your most important parts of your identity. It's no longer true. Christ and his body is what defines us. And the gifts that you've been given as a man and as a woman are to be used for the blessing of the church, his body. Lastly, I'm going to leave us with three ideas that I think we have to wrestle with as we deal, deal with this. The first one is we need to be committed to judging ourselves. Secondly, we need to offer grace to the world and thirdly, we need to offer rest to the weary. Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, the first letter that he writes, he's dealing with some issues that are going on in the church related to sexuality and things that are out of control. And here's what he says. It is not my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. It is absolutely normal for us who want to look outside the walls of the church and say, boy, they've really gotten it screwed up this time. Because in many cases, you're going to be right. But your responsibility is not to be the one who judges and brings judgment on a world that you should not be shocked is looking for answers in wrong places. Instead, our responsibility as the church is to look within ourselves and see where are we unfaithful? 
Where have we taken up the mantle of Western thought and used it to define who we are? Where are we submitted to things other than Jesus? Where are we unkind towards people who don't fit into the created order in this way? We need to be concentrated on ourselves more than we're concentrated on them. Because that's easy. And this is hard. Next up. We're here to offer grace to the world. John 3.17 says that Jesus did not come, or God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And the identity we've been given as the image of God included into his family with Jesus as our head is we are priests and priestesses bringing the good news, the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. And the gospel looks like this. He did not come to condemn, but to save And so what we should be offering is salvation, hope, and grace, not condemnation. That does not mean there are not things that are out of order. That does not mean there are not things that we need to confront that we're being presented as true. But what it should mean is that we are a kind of people who are known by our neighbors as a people who offer grace. When people who are dealing with an intersex condition or dealing with gender dysphoria come to the church, how are we going to be known? Are we going to be known as the people who have a really good argument about why they're wrong? Are we going to be known as the kind of people who love them and help them and welcome them into the family? Lastly, I want to offer hope to the weary. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I think this is an incredible place for us to land because it deals with both groups of people in the room today. If you're a cultural critic who sits at home and wrings their hand and you're nervous and you're losing sleep and you're getting angry and you're frustrated with your neighbors and you think politics is the answer to every problem and you can feel yourself getting more bitter and more angry by the day, I want to tell you there is rest in Jesus. You don't have to carry that burden. You are not the judge and the jury of the world. Christ is, he was, and he will be. And you can rest in that. You don't have to carry that burden. You weren't designed for it. It is too heavy for you. You can't even judge your own life, much less their lives. Christ has done it, and Christ will do it. You can rest. You don't have to be so anxious. Jesus has got it under control. Lastly, if you're in the room and you're saying, you know what, this conversation is not theoretical to me, it's not philosophical to me, you're talking about my loved one, you're talking about my grandchild, my children, my friend, you're talking about me. I'm the one who's dealing with these issues. I'm struggling with gender dysphoria. I want to make the same offer to you. I want to be very clear to you, if you're sitting here in this room, if you're watching this online, we love you. God loves you. You have value in the kingdom of God. And I know you're tired. The world has told you that you can find meaning and answers by chasing down a ghost. I'm telling you, there's nothing but more heartache down that road. There's nothing but more identity crisis. There's nothing but more struggle. Because Jesus is the only answer for the rest you're truly seeking. Church, I want to be a place where that person says, I feel comfortable there, not because they've got it figured out and not because they helped me figure it all out, but because they loved me authentically. They wanted to help me. 
They cared about me as an individual, a real person who struggles with real things. And they made room to hear my story and to care for me. That's hard work. We need the Spirit's help, so let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth that you offer us in the Scripture. God, we thank you for the grace you've offered us in Jesus. We confess that it is hard to not fall into a trap of being angry and being right all the time. God, help us to be a people that's open to loving neighbors who are struggling things with things we don't understand. God, you have been so kind to us. Make us a kind people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you guys later.